Hello there, ancient Greek history fans. My name's Josh Hirschman, and I'd like to introduce to you my podcast, The History of the Barbarians, and give you a couple of reasons why to come check out my story. The fall of Rome is always told as a tragic story of the end of an advanced empire that ushered in a time period of backwards thinking and dark times. The horsemen of this Roman apocalypse were none other than the godless, uncouth animals from Germania, the barbarians. The notion of these Germanic people being godless heathens who wanted nothing but to rape and pillage through the lands of Rome has been pushed for over a thousand years. This simple thinking always fascinated me and inspired my podcast, The History of the Barbarians. If you're interested in Roman, European, or just the history of the barbarians themselves, come and join me on my trip to discovering the real barbarians and the history of their interaction with the Roman Empire. Discover more about this group of people who would conquer Western Europe and help bring about the end of the Roman Empire. So once you've finished Ryan's fascinating podcast, The History of Ancient Greece, come check out The History of the Barbarians on all your podcast platforms. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 89, The Breakdown of Peace. Today's episode is brought to you by our new February Patreon supporters, Rodrigo Jimenez-Reyes and Ryan Edwards, as well as PayPal donor Suzanne Lyle. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Thucydides is very interested in the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, and his whole first book is dedicated to how and why the war happened. Early in book one, after he discusses his methodology and pronounces that this war was greater than any previous one. He says, quote, The Athenians and Peloponnesians began the war after breaking the Thirty Years' Treaty, which they had made after the capture of Euboea. As to why they broke the treaty, I have first written down the grievances, atii, and disputes, diaphori, so that no one should ever have to inquire from what origin so great a war broke out amongst the Greeks. I believe that the truest explanation, prophasis, although it has been the least often advanced publicly, was that the growth of Athens' power and the fear that this brought to the Spartans made war inevitable. But the grounds of complaint, which were openly stated by each side and led them to break the peace and go to war, were as follows. End quote. And then Thucydides begins his narrative and discusses what led to the war. In doing so, he attempts to single out an underlying cause beyond presumably what was the common opinion amongst his contemporaries. 
Most scholars seem to take these words by Thucydides to mean that he believed that war became inevitable at a certain point when the Athenian Empire became so powerful as to alarm the Spartans enough to start a war necessary to check the growth of that power. But this apparently wasn't the underlying cause that was commonly spoken about, as the Spartans would never dare to make this reason public, primarily because fear is not a valid ground for breaking the peace treaty but also because it would have been a shameful admission from such a powerful military state. Therefore, the Spartans concentrated on the grounds of complaint that affected their allies rather than themselves in order to make it seem like Athens had broken the 30 years' peace. And so if the war was inevitable, as Thucydides says, in this episode and the next, we are going to review the events that broke down the peace and led to the outbreak of the war in order to assess the accuracy of Thucydides' statement and to determine the degree of blame that each side should incur for infringing the terms of the peace treaty. As we mentioned last episode, Thucydides begins his account from the end of the Persian Wars and the forming of the Delian League, which quickly evolves into the Athenian Empire. Almost immediately, there emerged a distrust between Athens and Sparta that turned into a major division in the Greek world and ultimately produced a Spartan fear for the growth of Athenian power. We discussed this growing fear in episodes 40 and 41, as well as the much smaller so-called First Peloponnesian War in episode 42. This war would mark the peak of Athenian imperial power. By holding Boeotia and Megara on land and dominating the sea with its fleet, the city of Athens had stood utterly secure from attack. But the events of the mid-440s BC destroyed this position. For all of their successes in the early part of the war, the Athenians stared defeat in the face due to numerous mistakes in foreign policy and only survived by the fortunate withdrawal of Sparta's forces. From this war, Pericles learned some very valuable lessons, which helped him to shape future foreign policy decisions. He realized that Athens' power was based upon the sea and therefore the maintenance of their maritime empire had to be their greatest priority. Consequently, this naval power should not be put at risk in the future either by pursuing a land empire or by undertaking major overseas naval campaigns and simultaneously waging war in Greece. It was a gloomy moment for the Athenians, and it must have required all of the sensitivity and eloquence of Pericles to restore their shaken confidence and revive their drooping spirits. Although not all Athenians had given up their dreams of unipolar control of the Greek world, the Thirty Years' Peace Treaty that ended the war laid out the framework for a bipolar Greece. Both sides had found the war to be very unpleasant and uncomfortable, producing dangers and risks that neither had ever anticipated. And so at the time the peace treaty was made, both sides probably came to the realization that another war was to be avoided. If this sentiment is true then, sustainable peace must have been possible. And so the war that followed 15 years later was not inevitable, at least not at this point. But a series of events between 445 and 431 BC shattered the so-called 30 years peace, to the point that it didn't even last half that long. That's because, although the 30 years peace held a great deal of promise, it was also problematic in many ways. First, the treaty clearly and legally divided the Greek world openly into two spheres of influence, a Spartan land empire in mainland Greece and an Athenian naval one in the Aegean. By drawing lines so clearly, the agreement seemed to hold out the hope of peace, but it also fostered a potentially dangerous bipolarity. Secondly, there was the arbitration clause. 
This was very far-sighted, as it provided a mechanism to resolve by negotiation rather than to resort to war for any future dispute. But while the notion of submitting disputes to arbitration was all very civilized in the abstract, almost every state of any reputation in the Greek world was already allied with one side or the other. So in any future disagreements, who was going to act as the mediator? Furthermore, no treaty could change the fact that Megara still sat uneasily on the Attic border or could diminish the commercial rivalry between Athens and Corinth. And so, despite the positives in the treaty, it was impossible to predict whether the peace would last. In 445 BC, right after the signing of the peace treaty, many Greeks were optimistic though, convinced that Athens and Sparta had put their differences behind them for good so that they could get back to existing as they had before the Persian Wars. However, this optimistic view was very wrong, and the fact that it turned out to be misplaced makes it difficult for historians to avoid seeing the years before the Peloponnesian War as anything but a prelude to hostilities, though it is important to try to understand events as they unfold, rather than assessing them only in terms of their consequences. And so looking back from the vantage point of the war that followed, Certain events of the 440s and 430s BC take on particular significance, and as always, unexpected events would test the peace treaty, as well as its creators. During this period, the Athenians showed a marked interest in the west with Sicily and southern Italy, and the northeast with Thrace and the Black Sea. Since these areas all had city-states that would be major players in the Peloponnesian War, a large portion of today's episode is going to focus on bringing their affairs up to speed and discuss why these areas were important to the Athenians. First, let's start with Sicily, where Syracuse was not only the strongest city-state, but they had the second largest navy and population in the Greek world, only behind Athens on both accounts. We left off our discussion of the events on Sicily in episode 29, but as a quick refresher, by the end of the 460s BC, the Sicilian Greek cities had all broken away from the dominions of Gelon and Theron and had overthrown the tyrant's heirs. However, the fact that the tyrants had obliterated the class distinctions which had existed before them meant that the cities could now start afresh on the basis of political equality for all. The next half century was a period of increasing prosperity for the Sicilian polis, especially for the three greatest among them, Syracuse, Acragas, and Selenus. But in the place of the power blocks that had dominated Sicily, a dozen or so polis under oligarchic and democratic governments came into being. They continued the Ionic Doric feud in full force, in addition to continuing to be a threat to the native Sicily, or Sicils, who the Greek polis had pushed out of their settlements on the coast and forced them into the interior. For a time in the mid-5th century BC, though, the Sicils saw a revival of their power. The Sickles' revival was crafted by a man named Ducetius, and his story has been told to us by Diodorus Siculus. Ducetius was a native Sickle, but he received a Greek education, and so he was very much influenced by the Sicilian Greeks. He had assisted Syracuse in the 460s BC during their civil war that led to the establishment of their democracy. Afterwards, he founded the city of Menai on the hilltop of Menenum in central Sicily to the west of Syracuse. By 453 BC, he was able to organize a federation of the sickle towns of central Sicily, with the exception of Hebla, with the ultimate aspirations of bringing the Greek cities under native sickle rule of the island once again. As Ducetius' power and ambitions grew, he descended from the hilltop and founded Paliki to be the political capital of this federation. 
It was built on the site of a sanctuary for a pair of native sickle gods, called the Palike, hence the name. He enclosed the city with strong walls, and it prospered due to the fertility of its soil. The city also grew quickly as it became a place of refuge for runaway slaves. Ducetius then captured Etna, or Catania, near the foothills of Mount Etna, after treacherously slaying its leader. Afterwards, Ducetius led his army into the territory of Acragas in 451 BC and laid siege to the town of Machium, which was held by a garrison of those from Acragas. Although an ally, Syracuse had started to grow concerned by Ducetius's unchecked expansion, but with this action, they decided it was time to get involved. And so they came to the aid of Machium, but the combined Greek army was not able to defeat Ducetius. Since winter was approaching, the Acragans and the Syracusans returned to their homes, and so Ducetius was able to take the town of Machum. It was at this point that Ducetius's sickle empire was at its height. Over the winter, it was revealed that the Syracusan general, a man named Balcone, was thought to have had secret dealings with Ducetius, and so the people found him guilty of treason and put him to death. The following year, in 450 BC, they appointed a new general, whose name was not recorded by Diodorus. His mandate, though, was to subdue Ducetius. The two armies would meet near Nomai. A fierce struggle ensued, with many falling on both sides. But ultimately, the Syracusans overpowered and routed the Sickles, slaying many of them as they fled. At the same time, Acragus forced the capitulation of the Sickle-held town of Machium. Following both of these defeats, Ducetius' followers deserted him and scattered for safety amongst the sickle cities. Some of them even plotted against him, so he rode to Syracuse at night under the veil of darkness and took refuge at the altars in the Agora. The magistrates immediately called for his case to be debated in the assembly. Ultimately, since he was a suppliant, and to kill a suppliant meant bringing miasma, or religious pollution, into the city, the people voted for him to be spared and sent him into exile to Corinth. Syracuse's mother city, on the condition that he never returned to Sicily. However, after Ducetius had spent a short time in Corinth, he returned five years later in 446 BC, in violation of his agreement, because he claimed that the gods had given him a miraculous reply that he should found his third city, which was called Caliacte, literally meaning the beautiful shore, on the northern coast in the region of Messina. The city comprised both Sickle and Corinthian settlers, and it is likely that he somehow had achieved the permission of Syracuse in order to do so. However, the citizens of Acragas were not happy with the Syracusans, partly because they were envious of the growing power of Syracuse, and partly because they were angry that they had let Ducetius, their common enemy, go free without consulting them. And so Acragas declared war on Syracuse in 445 BC, and quickly the cities of Sicily were divided as some took the field with Acragas and others with Syracuse. The two sides pitched opposing camps at the Himera River, and in the conflict which followed, the Syracusans were victorious and slew more than a thousand Acragans. Afterwards, Acragas sent ambassadors to discuss terms, and the Syracusans concluded a peace. Returning to Ducetius, we are unsure if he had dreams of repeating his attempt at a revival of the Sickle Confederation, or if he had been convinced the Sickles were destined to be Hellenized like the rest of the eastern island had been. Regardless, he died a few years later in 440 BC due to an illness, and the remnants of the Sickle Federation were then destroyed by the Syracusans. For example, Paliki was sacked and its inhabitants were sold into slavery to ensure that there would not be a repeat in the future. 
And so the particular conditions of peace, which had existed after the return of Ducetius between the Sickles and Syracuse, had now vanished. With the rebellious Sickles put down and Acragus humbled, Syracuse would continue to expand their influence in Sicily and southern Italy. Ultimately, Syracuse could stake their claim as the strongest Sicilian Greek city-state, though Acragus still remained quite popular and rich. The same could also be said about Selenus in the western part of the island. Although Athens had never involved itself militarily in Sicilian affairs, it had political ties there, dating back to at least the mid-5th century BC. As is so often the case in history, economic interests would come to dictate political interests, and this certainly was the case with Athens and Magna Graecia. We discussed in episode 42 how Athens had multiple motives for previously accepting Megara into its alliance in 460 BC, just prior to the Peloponnesian War. But the desire to gain access to the port of Pegae on the Corinthian Gulf certainly was one factor, and the settlement of the Mycenaeans at Naupactus several years later provided a convenient stopping place for ships heading west. It was possibly also in the 450s BC that Athens contracted an alliance with Segesta in northwestern Sicily, though evidence for this comes from an inscription, and the Archon's name is missing quite a few letters. So whether you determine the name to be Habron, Ariston, or Antiphon, the date of the treaty could be 458, 454, or 418 BC, respectively. Regardless, we do know for sure that at some point in the 440s BC, alliances were made with Regium on the toe of Italy, and with another Sicilian city, Leontini, a close neighbor of Syracuse. These were probably made after 445 BC, as Syracuse's defeat of Acragus in that year had established its position as the strongest state in the West. It was probably a fear of Syracuse's recent territorial ambitions that explains why Leontini and Regium had approached Athens for protection at this time, though lessons learned from the First Peloponnesian War would have probably necessitated their avoidance of military commitments, and so a diplomatic alliance was the most likely outcome here. Regardless, to the small Sicilian cities, Athens was the potential counter to the powerful city of Syracuse, which was strong enough to potentially dominate the island. These diplomatic alliances with enemies of Syracuse were significant, because like Sparta and its Peloponnesian allies, Corinth was a Dorian city, while most of Athens' allies on the island were Ionian. Another source of conflict was the close relationship of Corinth and the other western Dorian cities to Athens' greatest trade rival, Corinth. In fact, Syracuse was not only an ally of Corinth, but was its colony. As we discussed in episodes 17, 57, and 68, since the late Archaic period, commerce with the western Greeks played a key role in the Athenian economy. In particular, large quantities of red-figure pottery were exported to Etruria, and Athenian ships returned laden with grain and cheese from Sicily, and metalwork from the Italian mainland. Gradually, the Greek cities of Sicily adopted Athenian currency, and so it is no coincidence that Athens was interested in the events transpiring out west. Athens's growing interest in the rich lands to the west is only illustrated by Pericles' decision to dispatch a colony to the instep of southern Italy at a site near the ancient city of Sybaris, which would become the first critical event to test the new peace treaty between Athens and Sparta. Sybaris had been destroyed by Croton at the end of the 6th century BC, as we discussed in episode 20. As with the earlier account of Sybaris and Croton, the main source here is Diodorus Siculus. He says that the site of Sybaris had remained desolate for 58 years, 
until a number of the Sybarite exiles and their descendants, whom had been living scattered in neighboring cities, decided to make a collective attempt to establish themselves again on the spot, under the guidance of some leaders of Thessalian origin. It is also thought that Poseidonia may have had a major share in this endeavor, because the coins of the new Sybarite city have a great resemblance to those of Poseidonia. Furthermore, a treaty of friendship between Sybaris, its allies, and the Serdioi, an unknown people, possibly dates to the time of this new foundation, in which Poseidonia was the treaty's guarantor. Regardless, the site was refounded in 452-451 BC, and rose so rapidly to prosperity that it attracted the attention of a jealous Croton once again, who in consequence destroyed the site and expelled the new settlers around six years later in 446-445 BC. The fugitive Sybarites first appealed for support to Sparta, requesting that they assist in their repatriation and take part in the settlement. This request must have been made after the conclusion of the Thirty Years' Peace in the early spring of 445 BC, as it would not have made sense to ask for help while Sparta and Athens were still at war with each other. Regardless, the Spartans, who traditionally were reluctant to become entangled in overseas matters, denied to help them. So they then turned to the Athenians, who were historically more open to this sort of thing. And so with Pericles' backing, the Athenians promised to join in the enterprise. However, they didn't choose to just reinstate the settlers that had been expelled, but determined to use this opportunity to establish something unique. They instead chose to found a new colony, which was different from all of the other Apoikia, in that it was a pan-Hellenic colony. As messengers were sent to the other city-states in Greece, inviting them to share in its foundation, although the Athenians clearly took the lead and appointed the critical players in establishing the colony. In fact, the Archistus, or founder, was an Athenian. The colony was sent out in ten ships under the command of Xenocritus and the guidance of Pericles' good friend Lampon, who was the leading seer in all of Athens and who many people believed had a special relationship with the gods. In fact, he was closely connected with the Eleusinian worship and was considered to be the highest authority in Athens on all matters pertaining to religion. At Athens, the enemies of Pericles opposed the project, especially its pan-Hellenic character. As we discussed in episode 54, the old comic poet Cratinus often derided Pericles in his plays. In this particular instance, he brought forth a play called the Dropatides, which is now lost, deriding Lampon as well, and asking whether Pericles was a second Theseus who wanted to Sinoicize the whole of Greece. Still, the Greek world responded to the Athenian proposal, and the colony went out under the guidance of Xenocritus and Lampon. The colonists had envisioned resettling on deserted Sybaris, but after Lampon had obtained advice regarding the city's founding from the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi, he guided the colonists in selecting precisely the right site for the town. They chose a spot on the Tarentine Gulf, just a short distance from the site of Sybaris, where there was a fountain named Thuria that was gushing out from a bronze pipe. It was also in the region that the natives called Medimnos, which was an ancient Greek unit of volume generally used to measure grain. According to the oracle, they were to found a city in the place where there would be, quote, water to drink in due measure, but grain for each without measure, end quote. Here, clearly, was the measured water, and the land was so fruitful that it appeared to provide grain without measure. And so, believing this to be the place that Apollo had pointed out, they built a wall around it and named the new city Thurioi, or Thurii, deriving its name from the spring of Thuria. This is what Diodorus records, at least. 
saying that only one expedition was sent for the foundation of Thurai. On the other hand, Strabo writes that there were two, which modern scholars tend to agree with. According to Strabo, in 445 BC, Athenian and other Greek colonists first resettled along with the existing population of Sybarites in the city of Sybaris. Regardless of whether it was before or after the foundation of Thurai, hostilities almost immediately ensued between the descendants of the original Sybarite settlers and the new colonists, as the former laid claim not only to honorary distinctions, but to the exclusive possession of important political privileges. In essence, the former Sybarites were assigning the most important political offices to themselves and the lower ones to those who had come as colonizers. In addition, the wives of the original Sybarite settlers also thought that they should enjoy precedence among the others in the offering of sacrifices to the gods, and the wives of the colonists were forced to take second place to them. Furthermore, they were assigning to themselves the allotments of the fertile land lying near the city while giving the more distant, less fertile land to the newcomers. Diodorus records that these disputes at length ended in stasis, and many of the Sybarites were killed by the other colonists, while those who weren't managed to flee from Thurai and establish themselves nearby on the Trace River, a settlement that would become known as Sybaris on the Trace. Strabo says that only after the expulsion of the original Sybarite settlers did the Athenians and the other new colonists found Thurai in 444-443 BC. Strabo here is supported by the fact that Thurai initially received a democratic constitution, which made provisions for ten tribes, which did not include the Sybarites. Regardless, Hippodamus of Miletus, the famous city planner of the 5th century BC, who had designed the Piraeus, was sent to Thurai to design the city in 440 BC. He laid out cities with great order and regularity as he applied the use of right-angled streets which differed from the intricacy and confusion common to those of the older cities that had developed out of old cow paths that just wound all over the place. In doing so, he was a pioneer in urban planning. In particular, Thurai was divided by four broad streets, or platii, each of which was crossed by three other streets. In these, blocks were constructed where small groups of two-floor houses were built. In addition, the historian Herodotus, another good friend of Pericles, also went to Thurai, where he is believed to have finished his histories, as well as the orator Lysias, one of the so-called Attic orators, who as a young boy began his studies in rhetoric in the Western Greek world. We will discuss Lysias in more detail in a future episode. Furthermore, Pericles had seen to it that the membership of the colony consisted of people from a variety of places, as colonists poured in from all quarters, especially the Peloponnese. And although the local coins were stamped with the head of Athena and an olive branch, and Thurai continued to generally be regarded as an Athenian colony, the Athenians in fact formed but a small element of the population. As we learned from Diodorus, the citizens were divided into ten tribes, just like Athens. Although there were more Athenians than anybody else, only one-tenth of the people were Athenians, and so a small plurality, and not a majority, would have prevented them from dominating the city. There also were several tribes made up of Peloponnesians, not from one particular city, but from all of the Peloponnese. Their names indicated their origin, Arcadian, Achaean, Aelian, Boeotian, Amphictyonic, Dorian, Ionian, Athenian, Euboean, and Nesiotic, from the islands. The form of government was democratic, drawn up by the sophist Protagoras, another friend of Pericles, 
and the city is said to have enjoyed the advantage of a well-ordered system of laws. But the colony did not adopt the Athenian laws of Solon, as you might expect, but instead the laws of Carondas, an esteemed lawgiver from Catania in Sicily. It is uncertain specifically when Carondas lived, and although some identified him as a pupil of Pythagoras, all that can be said for sure is that he flourished before Anaxilus was tyrant of Regium, from 494 to 476 BC, because his laws were in use amongst the Regians, until they are abolished by that tyrant. His laws, originally written in verse, were adopted by the other former colonies of Halcus in Sicily and Italy. According to Aristotle and his politics, there was nothing special about these laws, except that Carondas introduced actions for perjury, but he speaks highly of the precision with which they were drawn up. Scholars generally believe that the plethora of laws attributed to him by Diodorus are of a later Neo-Pythagorean origin, and so their authenticity cannot be confirmed. Furthermore, some scholars believe that Diodorus was erroneous in ascribing the laws of Thurai to Carondas. Regardless, his laws are quite interesting, so let's touch upon a few. First of all, those men who had married twice and were divorced twice were to be barred from politics, since Carondas believed that men who cannot make good decisions for marriage were men without any sense, and you ideally don't want men without any sense in any governmental position. He also decreed that those who are found guilty of perjury should wear a wreath in order to show their shame to their fellow citizens. This was intended to dissuade false accusations. He also wrote, what Diodorus considered his most superior law, that the state shall provide the salaries of teachers so that all citizens can learn to read and write, regardless of their wealth. In what may be his most comical law, Carondas wrote that those who left their post in war or refused to take up arms to defend their city, instead of the usual punishment of death, were to sit for three days straight in the agora, dressed in women's clothes, which apparently, like wearing the wreath for perjury, was considered to be a disgrace worse than even death. Carondas also commanded that anyone who proposed to revise any law should put his neck in a noose at the time that he made his proposal, and remain in that position until the people had reached a decision on whether to accept it. If they approved the revised law, the introducer was to be freed, but if the proposal did not carry, the man was to be hung on the spot. This was intended to prevent the introduction of frivolous changes to the law. Finally, the story that Carondas killed himself because he entered the public assembly wearing a sword sheathed to his side, which was a violation of his own law, is also similar to what we discussed with the 7th century BC Locrian lawgiver Zeleucus in episode 19 and what we will discuss in the future with the late 5th century BC Syracusan lawgiver Diocles. So this type of death may have been a popular motif for lawgivers in antiquity. Although Thurai was a Panhellenic colony, the protection that would have been provided by the backing of Athens is probably what prevented the rising colony on very fertile land from being attacked by Croton, just as they had continuously done with Sybaris. Eventually, the Thurians concluded a treaty of peace with Crota, and the new city rose rapidly to prosperity. The question, though, is did the Athenians have a larger strategy for Thurii? The Athenians came up with this brand new idea for a new type of colony that nobody had ever seen. But Pericles' intentions for Thurii were never explicitly stated, and scholars are split over its larger purpose. Some believe that he wanted to cast the colony as being Panhellenic and not Athenian in order to mask Athenian meddling in the West. 
while others argue for a complete opposite interpretation, as this was the best way to advertise the fact that the Athenians were not interested in expanding their power out to the west, because if they had been, they would have made it an Athenian colony. Furthermore, Thurai's early history demonstrates that Athens never intended to control it. Only a few years after its founding, in 442 BC, Thurai went to war with the Spartan colony of Taros, a neighboring town that later became the Roman town of Tarentum in modern-day Taranto. The cause was over the possession of the fertile district of the Cerritus, about 50 kilometers north of Thurai. The Thurians were led by the Spartan general Cleandridas, who, if you recall from episode 43, had been banished from Sparta, along with one of the Spartan kings, Pleistoanax, some years before for allegedly accepting a bribe from the Athenian leader Pericles to call off their planned attack on Attica. According to Plutarch, although Pleistoanax was later recalled to Sparta, Cleandridas had a death sentence imposed upon him in his absence, and so he ended up migrating to the new city of Thurai, looking for a new start in the west. Due to his military prestige, he immediately was chosen to be the general of the Thurians in this war. Although we don't have many details, Thurai and Cleandridas would be defeated by Teros in a hoplite battle in 441 BC. To rub it in, Teros took some of the spoils of victory and placed them at Olympia so that all the Greeks could come and see them boasting about their victory over Thurai. Their inscription read, quote, The Tarentines offered a tenth of the spoils they took from the Thurians to Olympian Zeus. End quote. However, the Athenians took no action towards the Spartan colony in support of Thurai, which is not the way that they would have reacted if they had intended for Thurai to be the center of a western empire in Sicily and southern Italy. By not reacting at all, it seems as if Pericles was sending a diplomatic signal to the rest of the Greeks that the Athenians had no imperial ambitions in the west. In particular, the city-state that would be most concerned about what was happening out west would have been Corinth, because their chain of colonies and major area of commerce was in the west, and so it seems that the Athenians were trying to signal to them, in wake of the Thirty Years' Peace, that they were content with sticking to the Aegean and Black Sea regions. This interpretation, though, is by no means the scholarly consensus, as we have mentioned. Whatever the reason, the Attic element in the population of Thurai would also have been greatly diluted with the passing of time and the Corinthians, at least, do not appear to have taken any offense in the foundation of this colony. Regardless of their intentions with Thurai, the Athenians' immediate economic interest laid not to the west, where Athens and Corinth butted heads, but to the northeast, in the area around Thrace and the Black Sea. Ever since the late Archaic period, Athens had succeeded Miletus as the main economic player in this region. Unlike the west and with Corinth, Athens was unchallenged in the northeast, and collectively, that which was imported from the Black Sea region was more vital than that which Athens imported from Sicily and southern Italy. And so, it was of the utmost importance for Athens to have secure lines of trade with Thrace and the Black Sea. The Athenians had already secured access to the Black Sea with the possession of the Chersonese and by the control of Byzantion and Chalcedon, who were allied subjects of the empire. In the Black Sea region itself, Athens traded with the Greek towns that sat around it. From there, Athens imported hides, dyes, slaves, and more importantly, grain and timber, and the routes to this part of the world also gave access to the caravan route through the Ural Mountains to Central Asia, and ultimately to the Chinese frontier, from which the Greeks could expect furs, gold, and perhaps even silk. 
These Greek towns on the Black Sea also looked to Athens for support against the neighboring non-Greek tribes. So sensitive was the grain market and the Athenian agora to every political movement in Thrace and Scythia that it was necessary for the Athenians to be ready at a moment's notice in case of upheaval to send their fleet to support merchant ships transiting the Black Sea. In particular, the growth of a large Thracian kingdom demanded the attention of Athens to this region. Thrace had nominally been a part of the Persian Empire, but after the Persian Wars, the Odrysian kingdom was able to acquire power in the region by unifying the 40 or so Thracian tribes under a single ruler, named Teres. He did so through military conquests, and so the kingdom that he possessed at its greatest extent physically reached the Danube, though his influence reached the Dnieper as he married his daughter to the king of a neighboring Scythian tribe. The union of the Thracian tribes under a powerful king forced Athens to keep a more watchful eye upon the northern Aegean. And so, around 446-445 BC, the Athenians found that the Thracian colony of Bria, somewhere on the lower reaches of the Strymon River. Although nothing is known about the city itself, we do have an inscription in which its founding is mentioned, known as the Bria Decree. The inscription is considered to be an important archaeological discovery because it provides us with a rare example for a planned establishment of an independent polis within the framework of Athens' colonization policy. The inscribed text contains several provisions concerning the colony's intentions and how it should operate. Added to this is the commitment of the allied cities in Thrace to support Bria if it were to be attacked. The Athenian ecclesia here clearly reveals that the actual function of the colonization was to maintain Athens' position of power in this region, because Athens had a strong interest in the Strymon River due to the strategic position of its mines and the precious metals that could be mined there. Plutarch also might allude to the establishment of Berea in his life of Pericles. Quote, in addition, he, Pericles, sent a thousand citizens as settlers to the Chersonese, five hundred to Naxos, half of them to Andros, and a thousand to Thrace to live together with the Basaltians, end quote. It's that thousand to Thrace part that may be referencing Berea. Plutarch interprets this colonization in such a way that Pericles, in his farsightedness, with a social program, alleviated the plight of the people and therefore sent the unemployed to the colony. In addition, in 444 BC, the Athenians reorganized the empire into five tribute-paying areas, Thrace, Hellespont, Ionia, Caria, and the Aegean Islands. The second critical event that tested the Thirty Years' Peace occurred in the summer of 440 BC. While the Athenians were engaged in expanding their sphere of interest to the west and the northeast, an alarming revolt broke out in the eastern Aegean. Prior to that, in 441-440 BC, the island of Samos, which had an oligarchic government, quarreled with the democratically controlled Miletus over control of Priene which was a smaller city-state on the Ionian coast that was situated between these two larger poles. Due to their locations, Samos and Miletus were long-standing rivals. Samos was the most powerful of the three privileged Athenian allies, along with Lesbos and Chios, who were still contributing ships rather than tribute foros to the Athenian League. The Milesians, though, had twice revolted and as a result had been subjugated, imposed with the democratic constitution, deprived of their fleet, and forced to pay tribute instead. So basically, they were no match to Samos, and were easily bested by them. 
And so the Milesians and some anti-oligarchic Samians, who wished to overthrow their government, complained to the Athenians, which presented a very difficult dilemma. On the one hand, the Athenians hardly wanted to get into a fight with Samos, an island of great strength and importance. But on the other hand, they couldn't allow a powerful member in the alliance to impose its will on a helpless ally. And so, the Athenians intervened on behalf of Miletus, for reasons that scholars continue to disagree over. Some believe that the Athenians were influenced by a desire to protect the Milesian democracy against the Samian oligarchs, while others believe that they were more concerned for the credibility of their empire if they failed to protect a state that they themselves had disarmed. Regardless, according to Plutarch, in his life of Pericles, the Athenians initially took a diplomatic approach by sending a directive stating that they would serve as the arbitrators in this dispute in order to avoid war. The Samians, who expected themselves to easily beat Miletus, unsurprisingly refused Athenian arbitration, and it was at this juncture that the Samian oligarchs decided to revolt from the Athenian Empire. This kicked off what historians call the Samian War which took place from 440 to 439 BC. The Athenians' hands had been forced, and so in response to this defiance of their leadership and authority, Pericles immediately put a fleet together of 40 triremes, which he commanded himself, to sail against Samos. The Athenians responded with such haste that the Samians were caught totally unprepared. And so, after putting down the rebellion with remarkable ease, Pericles replaced the ruling oligarchy with a democratic government, imposed a large indemnity of 80 talents, and took 100 hostages, 50 men and 50 boys, from the families of the rebellious oligarchs, and settled them on the island of Lemnos in the northern Aegean, to ensure that they would obey his directives. Pericles then left behind an Athenian garrison to guard the island, before returning to Athens. In their dealings with Samos, the Athenians had behaved with what you might consider to be relative restraint when compared, at least, to their previous clashes with other allies. As the Samians still retained their independence, their fleet, their walls, and their land. And so Pericles no doubt believed that this was the end of it. The defeated oligarchs, though, were angrier now more than ever, and so they sought help from their neighbors, the Persians. In particular, they traveled inland to Sardis, to the court of Pisthunes, the relatively new Persian satrap of Lydia and Ionia. Pisthunes was probably a grandson of Darius. Regardless, he was definitely a Persian who was somehow a relative within the Achaemenid royal dynasty. He would be satrap for about 20 years, from around 440 to 415 BC, and would become extremely rich as a consequence. Needless to say, he will play a role in Greek affairs during his reign. He agreed to help the Samians here, which would begin a trend of his supporting various oligarchical movements against Athens, in Polis along the coast of Asia Minor during his reign. In particular, he allowed the Samians to hire an army of 700 mercenaries from his territory, which they used first to rescue the hostages from Lemnos, thereby freeing the rebels to go forward without fear of their family members' safety. They then crossed to Samos at night, seized power, and installed an oligarchy once more on the island by overthrowing the newly installed democratic regime. Following this, they publicly declared themselves to be the enemies of the Athenians. To add insult to injury, the captured garrison and other Athenian officials were handed over to Bisthunes. As Plutarch puts it, quote, they were defiantly determined to fight the Athenians for the supremacy of the sea, end quote. Although the idea that Samos on its own could challenge Athens for control of the sea is an obvious exaggeration on Plutarch's part, 
Athens did find itself in the summer of 440 BC, facing a serious crisis with Samos. The situation was made even worse when news reached Athens that Byzantion was also in open rebellion, which imperiled Athenian access to the Black Sea. To make matters even worse, according to Thucydides, the important city of Mytilene also considered rebellion and waited only for Spartan support before joining the insurgents. Mytilene was the chief city of the island of Lesbos, which was another autonomous ally with their own navy. Also, there were troubles in Thrace and defections in Caria, and so Athens was suddenly confronted with the danger of a general revolt spreading in the north and east, which would threaten the very continuation of their Aegean Empire. Secondly, the Persians had actually taken an aggressive step against Athens by assisting the Samians in the rebellion. Pisthunes appeared willing to take advantage of the unfolding events and to break the peace of Callias, whether formal or informal as it was, between Persia and Athens in order to re-establish Persian control in Ionia and the Aegean. The Athenians had no way of knowing, though, whether Pisthunes had acted in accordance with instructions from the Persian king Artaxerxes, or if he was just running an independent operation. But since everything happened so quickly, and it would have taken months to get a message back to Susa, where the great king lived, Pisthunes seems to have been acting on his own accord. The dispute with Samos should have been an internal Athenian affair, as Samos was a listed ally of Athens, but the Samians made an appeal for help to the Spartans and the Peloponnesians, and there seems to be strong evidence that the Spartans had intended to exploit Athens' problems and launch an attack against them. Their intervention, no doubt, would have been the trigger for a massive uprising by Athens' subject allies. And so at this point, the Spartans called a meeting of the Peloponnesian League in order to discuss whether they should disregard the peace and make war on the Athenians by invading Attica. Due to the paucity of Spartan sources, though, we can only conjecture about how the powers that be at Sparta looked at the world following the 30 years' peace. And so we have no way of knowing whether they believed that the peace would last for 30 years, or if it would just be a temporary thing, until the conditions were so that the Spartans could take advantage of a weakened Athens. The one tantalizing tidbit that can be seen in Thucydides comes when the Corinthians are speaking to the Peloponnesian League much later, right before the vote for entering the Peloponnesian War takes place. In that situation, the Corinthians make the claim that they had previously dissuaded the Spartans from attacking Athens at the time of the Samian Rebellion. The Corinthian ambassador reports, at that point speaking to the Athenian envoys present, quote, We did not cast the deciding vote against you when Samos revolted from you and when the Peloponnesians were evenly divided over whether to help them, we openly opposed it, saying that any city could punish its own allies, end quote. If this story is true, and not fabricated by the Corinthians, for the purpose of scoring points with the Athenians, then clearly some of the Greeks who participated in the meetings of the Peloponnesian League saw merit in attacking Athens in 440 BC, and the Spartans must have been among them. If you remember from episode 22, the Peloponnesian League had a bicameral constitution in which the initiative for military action laid with Sparta. They would vote on whether to go to war in the Spartan assembly, and if they voted yes, then they would submit the proposal to the allied chamber for their decision. So in this instance, it seems that the Spartan assembly had made the decision to go to war when the majority of their allies, encouraged by the Corinthians, stopped it from coming into reality by arguing that the Athenians had the right to openly discipline their own allies without interference. And so, only six years after the signing of the peace treaty, the Spartans were prepared to break the terms of the treaty and attack the Athenians without provocation. Clearly, the faction of the Spartan warhawks was on the ascendant, 
especially after the exile of King Pleistoanax, five years earlier. But why were the Corinthians, who were so annoyed by the Athenians for their previous alliance with Megara, which started the First Peloponnesian War, now taking a critical position against war? Some scholars believe the most plausible answer here is Thurai, suggesting that many, if not most, of the Corinthians had been untroubled by Athens' intentions with the foundation of Thurai, or at least not so troubled that they wished to make war on Athens. And so the Corinthians must have received, and understood, Pericles' diplomatic signaling that the Athenians weren't looking to meddle in their superiority in the West. As a result, they changed their policies accordingly towards them. So long as the Athenians stayed out of their way, they were prepared to preserve the peace. Ultimately, the Peloponnesians' decision not to assist Samos in this particular instance was fortuitous for the Athenians, because whether they knew it or not, two elements had been in place that would later be needed in order to bring defeat to Athens in the Peloponnesian War, revolts in the empire, and support from Persia. But without Spartan participation, the rebellions could be crushed, and the Persians would then draw back. The Peloponnesians' decision not to become involved thus freed up the Athenians to put down the rebellions at Samos and Byzantion to restore their empire, and to strengthen their control of the Aegean Sea and their empire in the east. The determined campaign that followed was viewed as being so important for Athens that it involved all ten of the Athenian strategoi, and over 200 ships were sent on various independent missions in the Aegean, 160 from Athens and 55 from Chios and Lesbos, who, as we mentioned, were the only other two, besides Samos, who still supplied ships. 16 Athenian ships were sent southwards to Caria to look out for the Persian fleet, while Pericles personally led a punitive expedition of 44 ships to Samos, with Formio, the playwright Sophocles, and Hagnon, a son of Nicias, as three of his generals. The historian Thucydides may also have been on this expedition. This fleet engaged the Samians in a battle off of the island of Tragea, modern Agathonisi, which sits just south of Samos and is the northernmost island of the Dodecanese. Here, they defeated the slightly larger Samian fleet of 50 triremes, and the Athenians then blockaded the city by sea and by land, constructing walls around the island's principal city of Samos. Meanwhile, their fleet was reinforced by 65 more ships from Athens, Chios, and Lesbos. At this point, with the rebellion seemingly well in hand, Pericles was forced to lead away a substantial portion of the fleet after learning that a Persian fleet was approaching from the south to aid the Samians. The Persian fleet here actually means the Phoenicians, as they were the main sailors to the Persian Empire. Anyways, Pericles took 60 ships with him and sailed off to Conus and Caria to meet the oncoming Phoenician fleet, but they never appeared. It seems that the Phoenicians decided to turn back home before the two fleets met. Still though, either because of the absence of most of the Athenian fleet, or the inexperience of the Athenian generals who were left behind, the Samians were able to press their advantage and gain some success against the remaining Athenian ships. Plutarch reports that Melissus, the philosopher who we discussed in episode 83, led his fellow Samians to make an attack upon the Athenians by making a sally, which is a sudden charge out of a besieged place against the enemy, and in doing so, they drove off the remaining blockaders. All Athenians that they managed to capture were mockingly branded in the forehead with an owl, which was the symbol of both Athens and Athena. For two weeks, the Samians controlled the sea around their island and brought in supplies. Upon Pericles' return, though, the Athenians routed Melissus' forces, seized the harbor, re-established the blockade, and placed Samos under siege once again. Fresh reinforcements of 60 Athenian, Chian, and lesbian ships arrived at some point afterwards, and around 200 triremes now blockaded Samos. 
According to Diodorus, siege machines were built by a certain man named Artemon of Clazomenae, such as those called the rams and tortoises, intended to bring down the walls. In 439 BC, after a hugely expensive siege of nine months, Samos surrendered and was required to tear down their walls and surrender their fleet. Hostages were taken, but instead of becoming a tributary, the Samians agreed to repay the cost of military operations and installments, around 1,300 talents in 26 years, and to accept a democratic regime. Plutarch reports that a local historian named Durris claimed that Pericles bound the Samian commanders and sailors to posts in the Agora and left them there for 10 days. He then gave orders that their heads were to be beaten in with clubs and their bodies tossed on the ground to rot. This story is not recorded anywhere else, and most scholars doubt the accuracy of this claim, as it goes completely against the moral character, restraint, and foresight of Pericles. But the existence of the story probably reflects the extreme bitterness that the Samians had for Pericles and the Athenians. Years later, according to Thucydides, some Greeks looked back and observed that Samos, quote, had almost managed to wrestle from the Athenians their control of the sea, end quote. While this no doubt was hyperbole, it is true that had Sparta gotten involved and the Samians were victorious and thus freed themselves from Athens, their iron grip lock on the Aegean would have been loosened. But as it stands, the end of the revolts elsewhere in the empire followed rapidly afterwards. In particular, we know nothing about the subjugation of Byzantion, except that the Byzantines agreed to return to the empire. Although the punishment that the Samians had received was by now the standard practice for those who had rebelled against Athens, the subsequent Samian decree, which we fortunately have an inscription for, is very interesting in its tone. It reads, quote, I will do, say, and advise the Athenian people as best I can. I will not revolt from the people of Athens in word or deed, nor from the Athenian allies. I will be faithful to the people of Athens. And the Athenians swear that they will do, say, and advise the people of Samos as best they can and will look after the Samians. End quote. Compared to the Halkis decree that we discussed in episode 43, the Athenian portion of the oath here is far more generous, as they pledge to support and look after the Samians. Furthermore, the Samians were to swear loyalty not solely to the Athenians, as the Halkidians had to do, but also to their allies. It seems as if the Athenians here wish to acknowledge the uniqueness of Samos and to compensate them for the removal of their fleet, which was their main source of military strength, by treating them less harshly than the other revolting states. This policy would pay off in the long run then, as the Samians would stay loyal during the war, even when many other subject allies revolted. In addition, the indemnity that the Samians had to repay to Athens for the cost of the war is also interesting. There is a fragmentary inscription that records the expenditure from the treasury of Athena for the year 440 to 439 BC, with the amount that was used, quote, against the Samians, being around 1,300 talents, which is what they had to pay back. What's interesting to note about this expenditure, though, is that it came from the treasury of Athena, meaning it was sacred money, and not from the Hellenotamii, which was the secular treasury of Athens. This, then, might be the first recorded instance that we have for an Athenian campaign being funded by public borrowing from temple funds. Furthermore, after the Samian campaign, the Athenians reorganized the empire's tribute-paying districts once again, so that now there were four, as Ionia and Caria were merged into one. The other three still were Thrace, the Hellespont, and the Aegean Islands. 
As an aside, it seems that during the excitement of the Samian War, Pericles deemed it expedient to place some temporary restrictions upon the artistic freedom of the comic playwrights. What he feared was the effect that their criticism on his policy might have had, not necessarily upon the Athenians themselves, but upon the foreigners who were present in the theater, and especially upon the citizens of the subject states, who were all allowed to attend the city Dionysia. The precaution shows that the situation during the Samian War was considered to be critical, though these restraints were withdrawn soon afterwards, as they were contrary to the spirit of democracy. Henceforward, the only check on a comic poet was that he might be prosecuted before the boule for doing wrong to the people, if his jests against those in public offices went too far. What is meant by doing wrong to the people, though, was up to interpretation, and we will come across a particularly famous incidence of this during the war in a future episode. According to Plutarch, after Pericles had returned to Athens, he gave an honorable burial to those who had fallen in the war, presumably in the Democeon Sema, or the public burial ground, which we discussed in episode 79, and he won great admiration from the people for the oration that he made over their tombs. As he came down from the speaker's platform, a large group of women clasped his hand and fastened wreaths and fillets on his head, as though he were some victorious athlete. Then, Chimon's sister, Alpeniki, approached him and threw serious shade at him, saying, quote, This is an admirable deed, Pericles, and deserving of wreaths, in that you have lost us many brave citizens, not in a war with Phoenicians or Persians, like my brother Chimon, but in the subversion of an allied and kindred city. End quote. Pericles' response was equally cheeky, quoting to her a verse from the archaic poet Archilochus, quote, You have not, in spite of the years, perfumed yourself. End quote. Clearly, there was no love lost still between the two families. And as we discussed last episode, in wake of the Samian War, there would be a series of judicial and legal attacks from Pericles' enemies on his closest associates from 438 to 437 BC. Meanwhile, although we have no way of knowing if the Athenians had heard about Sparta's hostility and readiness to ignore the treaty, but if they did, no doubt many Athenians then would have started to believe, if they hadn't already, that war with the Spartans at some point in the future was now inevitable. This could explain why throughout the 430s BC, an imperative was placed on the consolidation and defensive preparation of the Athenian Empire. In doing so, Athens kept its gaze fixed on the northeast. This was nothing new though, because any time that Athens felt threatened throughout the 5th century BC, they sought to strengthen their control over Thrace and the Black Sea region, which was so vital to their very existence. The most important point on the northern Aegean coastline, both commercially and strategically, was the mouth of the Strymon River. Not far from the mouth was the bridge over which much of the trade between Thrace and Macedonia passed to and fro and up the Strymon Valley ran the chief roads into the Thracian interior. The mountains there were also famous for their dense forests, essential for the timber needed for shipbuilding, and for the veins of gold and silver stored in their mines. In addition, the Strymon River Valley was strategically located for the sea routes vital between the Hellespont and mainland Greece, necessary for Athens' supply of grain from the Black Sea region. But in addition to protecting Athens' access to grain, timber, and valuable minerals, control of the area would allow the Athenians to monitor activities in the recently organized kingdom of the Thracian Odrysians to the north and east, as well as the Macedonians to the west. 
In this endeavor, the Greeks had made several attempts at colonizing the Strymon River Valley. The Athenians successfully colonized the lower Strymon with Berea, as we mentioned, but there were two previous unsuccessful attempts at colonization of a particular spot on the upper Strymon, near the interior trade bridge. The first by the Milesian tyrant Histius, and the second by Cimon, who founded Eniohodoi, or the Nine Ways. Unfortunately, Cimon's would-be colonists had been murdered by angry Thracians some 30 years before. Finally, in 437-436 BC, the Athenians made another attempt in the same spot. And so the general Hagnon, who was a close associate of Pericles and one of his generals for the Samian War, was chosen to lead a multinational force of settlers. He managed to defeat a force of hostile native Edonians, drove them off of their land, and founded a colony at the former site of Heniahodoi. It was named Amphipolis, literally around the city, because the Strymon River flowed amphi, or around, the polis, or city, on three sides. This time, though, the colony flourished with the aforementioned multinational force of settlers, some of which came from Berea. However, this would be the last time that Berea appears on the historical record, and its future fate is unknown. But the fact that the town drew much of its population from neighboring towns would undermine its identification with Athens. In fact, during the upcoming war with Sparta, it would fail to serve as a rallying point for Athenian loyalists in the north. And within less than 15 years of its founding, it would be in Spartan hands. As it was the main power base of the Athenians in Thrace, it became a natural target for their Spartan adversaries. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Anyways, at this point, in 437-436 BC, according to Plutarch, as part of these consolidation measures, Pericles led a peaceful expedition into the Black Sea area to demonstrate Athenian military power and to establish good relations with both Greeks and non-Greeks in the region. It was in order to impress the inhabitants with a sense of the greatness of Athenian sea power that Pericles himself chose to command an imposing fleet. We know very little about the voyage, besides the fact that he visited Sinope on the southern Black Sea coastline, and that in consequence of his visit, the Athenians gained a permanent footing at that important point. It is probable, though, that he sailed to Panticapion, modern Kerch, on the eastern shore of Crimea. It was the capital of the so-called Bosporan Kingdom, which was centered around the Kerch Strait between the northern Black Sea and the Sea of Azov known in antiquity as the Cimmerian Bosporus, which is where the kingdom derives its name. Panticapion was the center of the Black Sea grain trade, and so it was of the highest importance for Athens. In particular, Pericles would have needed to ensure that Athens still had a good trade relationship with the Bosporan kingdom, who had recently undergone a dynastic transition. According to Diodorus, the region was governed from 480 to 438 BC by a ruling family of tyrants called the Archaean Actidae, or the Archaean Actids. They were a Greek dynasty, originally from Panticapion. The presumed founder, Archaeanax, was probably a strategos of a league of city-states in the Cimmerian Bosporus, likely formed as a defense against foreign threats, but then took power as a tyrant. If they had been a part of it, it is possible that the neighboring Crimean cities of Nymphaeon and Theodosia withdrew from the league after Archaeanax established the tyranny. Anyways, throughout the 44-year reign of the Archaeanactidae, Panticapion and the surrounding cities had unprecedented economic growth, as well as the construction of new temples and altars and new defensive structures. 
The prosperity of the Bosporan kingdom was based on the export of grain, fish, and slaves, and Athens was one of their largest consumers. But the throne was usurped by a Thracian named Spartacus in 438 BC, not to be confused with the famous slave who led a rebellion against the Romans almost four centuries later. Anyways, some scholars have theorized that Spartacus was a member of the ruling family of the Thracian Odrysian kingdom, as some of its members had the name of Sparatokos, and so they may have sought influence in other parts of the Black Sea. We will discuss the Odrysians more in a future episode, as they will come to have a military role in the Peloponnesian War. Anyways, other scholars believe that Spartacus was a Thracian mercenary who was hired by the Archaean Actids. Regardless, he was a Thracian who seized the tyranny, either peacefully or by force. If it was the latter, he probably used his military background to get control of the Bosporan army. After taking control of the kingdom, he would become the founder of a Hellenized Thracian dynasty, named after him, known as the Spartakidae, or Spartakids, and his descendants would continue to rule the Bosporus until the late 2nd century BC. At this point, Spartacus ruled over Pantacapion and a few other nearby cities, but his descendants would expand the kingdom's realm rapidly in the following century through a series of wars and conflicts and grow into quite the power. But returning back to Pericles in 437-436 BC, it was necessary for him during his peaceful expedition into the Black Sea to ensure that the trade agreements that Athens held with the former ruling dynasty would still be intact moving forward with the Spartacids as their grain was vital to Athens' survival. In fact, not only did trade continue with the Bosporan kingdom in Athens, but Spartacus himself was said to have thought of the Athenians as the most important of Greeks, and provided them first with his grain. He only reigned for seven years until 431 BC, but his son Satyrus would continue his father's policies, and their grain supply will be critical in the upcoming Peloponnesian War. Anyways, with friendly relations with the Spartacids and the establishment of Amphipolis, the entire northeast Aegean was now economically secure for Athens. The combination of Thurii and the Samian Crisis shows that the peace had been tested in the first years of its existence, and yet peace still won out over a tremendous temptation to go to war by some. And so it seems that their outcomes appear to have strengthened the prospects of peace as both sides in the decade following the peace had shown self-control and refused to seek advantages that might endanger the treaty. And so, both sides seemed to have still trusted one another enough, at least, to behave by the rules as they had been established in their spheres of influence. The outlook for the future seemed positive, and the war didn't appear inevitable at this point. Therefore, the chances for lasting peace were probably still fairly reasonable during the early 430s BC, but a series of interrelated crises later in the decade brought the peace to an end, and in these crises, Corinth would play the largest and most influential part. As we mentioned earlier, in the absence of a strong commitment to amicable coexistence, the terms of the Thirty Years' Peace contained within themselves the seeds of war. Arbitration was meaningless when all of the major states were lined up on one side or another. Rules made in one sphere of influence might have had an impact on the other, and some states enjoyed an ambiguous status, with one foot in each camp. On all of these fronts, the peace was vulnerable, as the events that began in 430 BC in a remote corner of the Greek world were to prove. 
when a quarrel arose at Epidamnus that created new and unexpected problems. Epidamnus, or Dyrrachium in Roman times, and modern-day Durus in Albania, sat on the northwestern shore of the Greek peninsula that borders the Ionian Sea, and it was so far north that it was not even considered to be on the way to anything important, and so it was in the middle of nowhere as far as the Greeks were concerned. In fact, Thucydides writes, quote, The city of Epidamnus is on the right as you sail into the Ionic Gulf. The Talantians, a barbarian people of the Illyrian race, live nearby. The Corsirans colonize the city, although the Oikistus, or founder, summoned according to the ancient custom from the mother city, was a Corinthian. End quote. Thucydides begins his narrative of the events that led to war with this explanation because he assumes that his readers may need to be told the location of this little-known town, as nothing is inherently important about Epidamnus itself. Its most important aspect, though, was that it had been founded by Corsaira, the modern island of Corfu, which was located quite a bit south of Epidamnus. Corsaira itself was a colony of Corinth. During the Archaic period, the Corinthians were determined to build a sphere of influence in the Greek northwest, and it was in this endeavor that they founded Corsaira. However, Corsaira was a very unusual colony, and its relations with the mother city were always rocky. In fact, these two cities hated each other with a passion, and for centuries they had quarreled and fought a series of wars, often over control of some colony that both claimed as their own. If you remember from episode 14, it is at this point that Thucydides mentions that the earliest Greek sea battle, of which he had knowledge at least, took place between Corinth and Corsaira in the 7th century BC. And so it was the small polis of Epidamnus that proved to be the catalyst for the war. According to Aristotle and his politics, Epidamnus was a tight oligarchy that appointed a ruling magistrate, and tradesmen and craftsmen were excluded from power. But in 436-435 BC, following a stasis, or civil war, which broke out within the city of Epidamnus between the Democrats and the oligarchs, the resulting internal strife produced a more democratic government. When the oligarchs took control of the city, the Democrats were driven into exile. The Democrats initially received help from neighboring non-Greek tribes because they were located at the frontier of the Greek world and were not surrounded by fellow Greeks. They then proceeded to besiege the city of Epidamnus with a large army. And so the oligarchs, who controlled Epidamnus, sent a delegation to their mother city, asking for help from Corsaira in bringing peace to the city and in putting an end to the siege. The Epidamnian ambassadors seated themselves in the temple of Hera as suppliants, but the Corsairians blatantly refused their supplication for an unspecified reason, probably because they didn't care which side won and saw no point in getting involved. In fact, Corsaira was neutral towards everybody, as they were not a part of the Peloponnesian Confederation or the Athenian League. Anyways, when their mother city turned them down, the Epidamnians were in a quandary about what to do next, so they sent envoys to Delphi to consult the Oracle of Apollo. There, they were encouraged by the Delphic Oracle to turn to Corinth, their grandmother city, and so the Epidamnians went to Corinth to seek their help next. The Corinthians, though, agreed to send help to their besieged city, and they were fully aware that their involvement would anger the Corsairians, probably to the point of war. At first, they sent a large garrison to reinforce the Democrats in the city. In addition to the Corinthians, the force was made up of Ambraciates and Leucadians. Ambracia was the region of Greece on the western coast that sat to the southeast of Corsaira, 
and Lucas was the island that sat opposite of Ambracia, but slightly further south down the coast. These two were Corinthian colonies that they too had established during the Archaic period, but obviously they had a much better relationship with their mother city than did Corsaira. This force traveled by the more difficult land route out of fear that the Corsairians might prevent them if they went by sea. And so, they marched to Apollonia, another Corinthian colony, which sat directly south of Epidamnus on the coast and was north of Corsaira. In other words, they marched a very long way. This forces us to ask why were the Corinthians willing to make such an enormous contribution, both in time and resources, to a cause that was this far away? There is no evidence that Epidamnus held any significant economic benefits for Corinth, and scholars can't seem to come up with a practical, material reason for Corinth's decision. And so we must believe Thucydides here, who provides an explanation on other grounds, saying that the motive for Corinth's behavior was simply out of spite for the Corsarians, because they did not pay them the respect that they felt that they deserved. Quote, this the Corinthians consented to do, believing the colony to belong as much to themselves as to the Corsarians. They felt it to be a kind of duty to undertake their protection. Besides, they hated the Corsarians for their contempt of the mother country. In the common festivals, they did not give them the customary privileges, nor did they begin by having a Corinthian commence the initial sacrifices, as the other colonies did, but treated them contemptuously. End quote. And so the reason is that the Corinthians hated being dishonored by their colony, and they would rather bring dishonor to them now by helping their own colony of Epidamnus after they refused. Upon receiving word that Corinth had agreed to help Epidamnus, Corsair's indifference towards their colony ended, and its fleet immediately delivered an ultimatum that the Democrats in Epidamnus must dismiss the Corinthian garrison and colonists and take back the exiled oligarchs. Corinth obviously would not accept such terms without also being disgraced, and the Democrats in Epidamnus didn't want the oligarchs back either. So after their ultimatum was dismissed, the Corsairians sent 40 ships to besiege Epidamnus, while the oligarchic exiles and their Illyrian allies enclosed it by land. Corinth didn't respond to this by simply leading an army and its fleet to relieve the besieging city. Instead, they did something else. Since the city was factionally divided between two political opposites that were trying to kill each other, the Corinthians figured that neither side would take back the other, and so no matter who got the upper hand, the city would need to be repopulated. And so the Corinthians then announced that they planned to lead an expedition to establish an entirely new colony at Epidamnus. They invited settlers from all over Greece, guaranteeing political equality to all who chose to join in, and stipulating that any Corinthians who were not prepared to sail at once, by paying down the sum of 50 drachmae, could also have a share in the colony without leaving Corinth. Great numbers took advantage of this proclamation, both as colonizers and financiers. These would-be colonizers were sent to the area, accompanied by 30 Corinthian ships and 3,000 hoplites. An additional 38 ships and funds were provided by some of Corinth's allies in the Peloponnesian League, including Thebes, Megara, Epidaurus, Hermione, Troezen, Phileas, and Elis, as well as Ambracia, Lucas, and Cephalonia in the northwest. The Spartans, though, provided no assistance whatsoever, perhaps because they had perceived with great foresight the danger inherent in this Corinthian expedition. 
When the Corsairians heard of Corinth's intentions, they were naturally angered, but also frightened. Because Corinth was a powerful polis, and more importantly than that, Corinth was one of the most significant allies of Sparta, and if they were to get involved, it would be over for them. And so the Corsairians attempted to resolve the matter with diplomacy. They asked for a conference with the Corinthians, as well as Spartan and Siconian ambassadors, to make peace over this issue. The Spartans' willingness here to take part in the discussions clearly demonstrated their desire for a peaceful outcome. However, the Corinthians were adamant that the Corsairians had to withdraw their forces from besieging the city and their fleet from the sea before they'd even consider peace. The Corsairians said that they would only withdraw their people if the Corinthians withdrew theirs too. But the Corinthians said no. Also, the Corsairians wanted to submit this quarrel for arbitration to a third party and have them settle it, suggesting any mutually acceptable Peloponnesian state or the Oracle of Delphi. They had little to fear from arbitration though, since all of the suggested parties would be under the influence of Sparta, who likely would have required the Corinthians to remove themselves and the colonists to keep the peace. But the Corinthians turned that offer down as well. So it's obvious that Corinth wanted war, and Corsaira wanted peace at this point. And so the Corsairians told them that if they didn't work this out now, they'd be forced to seek a new ally, referring to the Athenians, which was a blatant threat, but not one that would violate the 30 years peace, since Corsaira was neutral and free to join whichever side it so chooses. Well, both sides left the meeting with no peace in place, and immediately the Corinthians organized their navy for an attack and sent a herald to the Corsairians to declare war. Heralds operated under the protection of the messenger god Hermes and were easily identified by the staff that they carried. They alone could travel unmolested between warring states or armies in order to deliver messages and take back replies. So with their herald having declared war, Corinth sent a fleet of 75 ships along with 2,000 hoplites to Epidamnus in the summer of 435 BC. This fleet was under the joint command of Aristeus, Callicrates, and Timanor, while the troops were jointly led by Archetimos and Isarchidus. Of these five Corinthian men, only Aristeus is really important to remember as he will show up later. Furthermore, Aristeus comes from a line of Corinthian generals, as his father was Adamantus, who led the contingent of Corinthian ships at the battles of Artemisium and Salamis. When the Corinthian fleet had reached Actium, in the region of Anactorium, at the mouth of the Gulf of Ambracia, the Corsairians sent a herald in a boat to warn them not to sail any further. But the Corinthians ignored this request, and so in the return of their herald, the Corsairians sent out the rest of their fleet of 80 ships, as the other 40 were still besieging Epidamnus. These 80 ships intercepted the Corinthian fleet of 75 ships en route, and the ensuing battle of Leukemia, just to the southeast of Corsaira, saw the Corinthian fleet being thoroughly defeated and losing 15 ships. As a result, the humiliated Corinthians sailed home. After the engagement, the Corsairians set up a trophy at Cape Leukemia, a promontory on Corsaira's southeastern coast, where they slew all of those that they had taken captive, except for the Corinthians, whom they kept as prisoners of war. On that same day, Epidamnus also finally surrendered to the Corsairian besiegers. And so, Corsaira now ruled the Ionian Sea and the city of Epidamnus, and for the rest of 435 BC, their ships damaged the allies of Corinth in their vicinity, including the island of Leucas and Kyllene, which was the harbor of Elis. 
because they had furnished ships and money to Corinth. This should have been the end of the matter, as the Corinthians, led on by ambition and their hatred of the Corsairians, had tried to extend their power, but ultimately failed. However, the Corinthians were not prepared to let the matter rest, and so they spent the following year preparing their military to exact revenge on Corsaira. In doing so, they began to hire mercenaries and to build an even larger fleet of 90 ships, a size which was unprecedented outside of Athens, intended to protect their allies in the Adriatic Sea, to humble Corsaira, and to retain their predominance in western waters. At last, the following year, in the summer of 434 BC, the Corinthians sent out their ships and troops to form an encampment at Actium. The Corsairians formed a similar station on Leukimi. Neither side made any movement, though, and finally, before winter arrived, both sides sailed home. At the same time, in 434-433 BC, there was a big argument that breaks out within Thurai over whose colony they were to be considered which indicates that not everybody thought it was an Athenian colony right off the bat. The Athenians in Thurai naturally claimed that they were an Athenian colony because there were more Athenians than any one other polis, whereas the Peloponnesians said that they were a Spartan colony because there were more total Peloponnesians than there were Athenians. Since they couldn't agree, they came to the decision that they would allow Apollo, through his oracle at Delphi, to decide. Naturally, the oracle should have chosen the Spartans, since they had been the defenders of the priests against the Phokians. However, the oracle said that Thurai was neither an Athenian nor a Spartan colony, but belonged to Apollo, thereby reaffirming its Panhellenic character, and the imperialistic Athenians did nothing about it, which again absolutely undercuts any claim that the Athenians intended to challenge Corinthian supremacy in the West. In the north, things were also brewing in Macedon. After the death of Alexander I, almost two decades earlier, Macedonia began to fall apart. His son, Perdiccas II, eventually ascended to the throne six years later in 448 BC, but the Macedonian tribes had become almost completely autonomous by that point and were now only loosely allied to the king. Although Alexander was an Athenian proxenos, who looked after the interests of Athens, in addition to his own citizens, and although the position of proxenos for a particular city was often hereditary in a particular family, the relationship between the Athenians and Perdiccas was not always as warm as it constantly changed from friendship to enmity, depending on which was politically expedient for each side. In particular, in the early 430s BC, as Athens was consolidating its control over the northern Aegean, Tension began to rise between these two. By 434 BC, Athens and Perdiccas were on the outs, and so when his younger brother Philip I challenged Perdiccas for the throne, he enlisted the support of Athens, who gave it to him, as well as King Derdus of Elmiotis, which was a region in Upper Macedonia. Although Perdiccas was able to keep a hold of the Macedonian throne, as a result of Athens' decision here, he will be all too eager to cause trouble for the Athenians in the final years of the 430s BC. But we are getting ahead of ourselves, and we will get there shortly. Turning back to the Corinthians, over the winter of 434-433 BC, once they arrived back at Corinth from Actium, they unofficially turned to their Peloponnesian allies for assistance, who promised to provide them with 60 ships to add to their 90 for a grand total of 150 ships. In every effort to form an efficient and effective fleet, 
Corinth was able to induce many experienced rowers from their Peloponnesian allies to join their cause by offering them more money. Generally, rowers were paid one drachma per day, which was considered to be the standard wage for a day's labor, but experienced rowers, known as thranites, were highly sought after and could demand a much larger bonus, depending on the expertise and the need, and Corinth desperately was in need at this point. On the other hand, the Corsairians had only 120 ships, 30 less than what the Corinthians and their allies were putting together, and so since they didn't belong to either the Peloponnesian League or the Athenian Alliance, they had no allies of their own to beef up their numbers. As a result, a thoroughly alarmed Corsaira decided to back up their previous bluff to end their neutrality by sending ambassadors to seek a military union with Athens in June of 433 BC. When the Corinthians got wind of this, they too sent ambassadors of their own to Athens, as Thucydides puts it, quote, to prevent the addition of the Athenian fleet to the Corsairians' fleet, since that would impede their victory, end quote. According to Thucydides, both sets of ambassadors were present on the Peninx Hill in September of 433 BC, and he reported both of their speeches, as given in the Athenian Ecclesia. The arguments which Thucydides puts into their mouths express clearly the importance of this impending decision for the Athenians. The Corsairian ambassador spoke first, and he faced a tall task, as no previous informal friendship or formal alliance had ever existed between them and the Athenians and because an alliance with them would most assuredly entangle Athens in a war against Corinth, at the very least, and possibly against the entire Peloponnesian League. He began by acknowledging that their past policy of avoiding alliances has now left them dangerously isolated, because Corinth has attempted to dominate them, and has refused their offer of arbitration. The essence of their plea rested on moral and legal grounds, arguing that Corinth was in the wrong for what they did, and that it would not be a breach of the Thirty Years' Peace for Athens to accept them into their alliance, since neutrals are permitted to enter either side. But the Corsairian ambassador knew that the Athenians would be more swayed by arguments grounded in what an alliance with Corsaira would do for their security and interest. So he also tried to convince the Athenians on the grounds of the balance of naval power in the Greek world. In passing, he made the point that Corsaira was very well situated for a sea voyage to Sicily and southern Italy, where the Athenians and others were always wanting to go. Geographically, this route definitely would not be the quickest, but in the ancient world, military vessels were forced to follow coastlines and rarely ventured, like merchant ships, into the open sea. So to get to Italy, Athens would have to sail along the western coastline of Greece and then cross over the Ionian Sea at the shortest point between the two peninsulas, which would be the path between Corsaira and the heel of southern Italy. The Corsairian ambassador also argued that since no polis shuts its ports to any other polis except in times of war, and they believed that war was inevitable, the Athenians should want to be on their side to have access to their port's strategic location. Finally, his most powerful appeal was to fear. He argued that war was inevitable, saying, quote, The Spartans are eager for war out of fear for you, and the Corinthians have great influence from them and are your enemies. End quote. Therefore, Athens should accept the Corsairians because quote, there are three fleets worthy of mention in Greece yours, ours, and the Corinthians. If the Corinthians get control of us first, you will see two of them become one, and you will have to fight against the Corsairian and Peloponnesian fleets at once. But if you accept us, you will fight against them with our ships, in addition to your own. End quote. 
Essentially, he argued that if the Athenians should let the Corinthians beat them, their ships would fall into their hands, and then Corinth will have a much mightier fleet than even the one that the Athenians could put together, and so their dominance of the sea will be challenged. But if they allied themselves with Corsaira, the Athenians would have overwhelming naval superiority in the coming war. The Corinthian ambassador then spoke, and he began his speech by verbally abusing the Corsairians. He accused Corsaira of having pursued a policy of isolation so that their geographic position would allow them to harass the many ships that were forced to sail by them and dock in their harbor. He then claimed that Corsaira has always treated Corinth with disdain and that Corinth's current war plans against them were a result of their provocative behavior over Epidamnus. But this was a difficult case to argue as Corinth had been the aggressor at Epidamnus and had rejected all of Corsaira's peace offers even against the advice of their allies, and no doubt many of the Athenians would have seen this. The Corinthian ambassador then said that if the Athenians allied with the Corsairians now, they would be in violation of the Thirty Years' Peace, not legally, but in spirit and in common sense. Quote, Although it says in the treaty that any of the unenrolled cities may join whichever side it likes, the clause is not meant for those who join one side with the intention of injuring the other. End quote. Essentially, he argued that the treaty's rights for neutral states was not meant to include a neutral state which was seeking an alliance for the purpose of waging war against a consignatory of the treaty. Also, he claimed that the Athenians should allow them to punish their own allies without interference, just as they had done with Samos. Here is where Thucydides says that the Corinthian ambassador reminded the Athenians that during the Samian rebellion, just seven years earlier, Corinth helped to dissuade Sparta and the Peloponnesian League from attacking Athens at their moment of great vulnerability. He also reminded the Athenians that during their war with Agina, prior to the Persian Wars, Corinth supplied them with ships. And so the Corinthians were calling upon the Athenians to return those past favors and not to incur Corinth's enmity just to secure a naval alliance with another state. Although the Corsairene ambassador argued that war was inevitable, the Corinthian ambassador concluded that he was scaremongering and claimed that if the Athenians allowed them to smash the Corsairians, there wouldn't be a problem between both sides, and therefore, there would be no need for a war between them. But if they accepted the Corsairians into their alliance, then there would most definitely be war. The Corinthian argument here, though, was not entirely sound. He was essentially arguing that the Athenians should let them deal with Corsaira, just as they had done so with Samos but Corsaira was never Corinth's ally, like Samos was to Athens. Although the Corinthian ambassador's argument that Athens would be in violation of the peace treaty held no legal basis whatsoever, he was correct in a deeper sense, as there could be no lasting peace if either side chose to help a neutral state at war with the other side. So that's what the Athenian ecclesia was confronted with when they had to make this pivotal decision that many realized would have had huge ramifications one way or the other. Although the Thirty Years' Peace specified that neutrals could join either side, the Athenians were understandably nervous about allying with Corsaira, but they were even more apprehensive about what would happen if Corinth defeated and absorbed Corsaira's substantial fleet. In addition, despite Corinth's claims, there was little in their speech to alleviate most Athenians' concerns about the inevitability of war with themselves and the Peloponnesians. And so, it must have been a hotly debated, back-and-forth type of environment on the Peninx Hill that day. Thucydides says that they argued for so long that it became dark before a decision could be made. 
So they met again the next day, which was unusual in itself since almost all debates in the ecclesia ended within a single day. The opinion at the end of the first day inclined towards a rejection of what the Corsairians had been requesting, which was the Symmachia, or an offensive and defensive alliance, that would have required the Athenians to attack the Corinthians if the Corsairians asked for their assistance, which would then violate the peace treaty and put them fully at war. However, there must have been feverish discussion overnight, because on the second day, a new plan emerged, as the Athenians voted for an alliance with Corsaira, but with certain restrictions. Instead of a sumachia, they opted for an epimachia, or a defensive alliance only, meaning that they would only fight against an enemy if that enemy had attacked Corsaira and was in the process of landing on their territory, which would put the onus of violating the peace on the aggressor, not the Athenians. The Corsairians, in turn, would be obligated to help the Athenians if they or one of their allies in their alliance were attacked. Once again, we see the formation of a diplomatic device unheard of before, as this is the first such defensive-only relationship that we know of in Greek history. Although Thucydides didn't mention who made the proposal, presumably it was the brainchild of Pericles, who no doubt was one of those who argued in favor of the alliance and who had the most influential hand in shaping Athenian foreign policy. In fact, according to Plutarch, Pericles, quote, persuaded the people to send help to the Corsairians who were fighting the Corinthians and to attach themselves to a vigorous island with naval power, end quote. Regardless, it clearly was a policy to keep the peace but one that indicated to the Corinthians that they were wrong to assume the Athenians would just stay out of it. The Athenians knew that they could not allow the Corinthians to defeat and absorb the Corsairian fleet, so they would send a force not because they wanted to fight the Corinthians, but because they wanted them to see what the consequences would be if Corinth should start an unnecessary fight. But this defensive alliance was a technicality that fooled nobody, especially the Corinthians as it was clear that Corinth was about to attack Corsaira and that the Athenians and Corinthians would soon be at war. In order to meet this new commitment, Pericles immediately dispatched ten triremes to Corsaira, led by three generals. They could easily have sent as many as 200 from their sizable navy of about 400 triremes, and together with the ships of the Corsairians, they could have, if they wished, guaranteed that the Corinthian and Peloponnesian fleet would have been swept from the sea. But Pericles didn't do that because it was not his intention to provoke the Spartans. The small number of ships then had more of a symbolic than a military value, intended to show that Athens was serious in its pledge of deterrence rather than outright war. However, after those ten had been sent, the question was raised once again in the Athenian Ecclesia obviously by those who didn't agree with Pericles' approach and who insisted that there should be a larger fleet sent. Although Pericles apparently could not prevent them from voting to send more ships, the most that they could get a vote for was 20 more, sent some days after the first. In addition, it is very unusual to have three generals sent with such small a fleet, and one of the three Athenian commanders was Lacidaemonius, the son of Chimon, and Aproxenos of Sparta. In fact, Lacidaemonius' very name, which comes from Lacidaemon, is evidence of his father's close ties with the Spartans. The other two generals were Diotemus and Porteus, whose names are otherwise insignificant. Regardless, the large number of generals in a small fleet indicates that they were on a diplomatic mission, rather than a military one, and the fact that one of those generals was Lacidaemonius clearly was meant to dissuade Spartan suspicion of this mission. 
Plutarch regards his appointment as a move by Pericles to humiliate him. But more probably, if he had inherited his father's opposition to Pericles, which is not certain, the appointment could also signify the strength of Pericles' opponents in the Ecclesia. Most likely, though, Pericles had planned it this way, because if the Athenians were to get drawn into battle, then the command would be led by Lacedaemonius. Then, with the peace now broken, the Corinthians would seek assistance from Sparta, who would have had to face the fact that even Lacedaemonius couldn't prevent the war from happening. If this is true, then all of these were cagey moves by Pericles, implemented to pursue his extremely complicated and tricky foreign policy strategy. Furthermore, Pericles probably hoped that when the Corinthians approached Corsaira and saw the Athenian ships, the Corinthians would back off, and there would be no battle after all, thus averting what was shaping up to be a crisis. As it turned out, though, this did not happen, and the Battle of Sabota took place almost immediately in September 433 BC. As soon as the envoys had arrived back in Corinth, with news of the Corsairean and Athenian alliance, the Corinthians decided to press ahead with their task force of 150 ships against Corsaira, and now Athens. They may have hoped that the Athenians, when it came down to it, would not actually intervene through fear of provoking a war with Sparta. If so, they were partially correct, as Lacedaemonius' orders were to stay put and not engage in battle until the moment when it appeared that the Corinthians were not only going to win, but were going to land on the island of Corsaira. However, in every battle there occurs what is known as the fog of war, in which uncertainty and situational awareness can lead to uncertainty in an adversary's capability and intent. Modern forces have the ability to reduce the fog of war with technology and military intelligence, but these concepts were virtually impossible in trireme battles of the 5th century BC, and so it would have been impossible for anyone to have been certain when the Corinthian ships had guaranteed victory and were intending to take the island of Corsaira. It would be a call that the Athenian generals would have to make, and it would be a difficult one. It's more than likely that Pericles anticipated that there might be an engagement, and gave them these orders so that he could blame Lacedaemonius and the other generals for rushing into the fight too soon. Also, it would be interesting to know if these orders were made known to the Corsairians, and if they were, what their reaction was. But alas, Thucydides doesn't provide us with that information. Thucydides, though, does describe the naval battle of Sabota in great detail, because according to him, it was the largest naval battle in terms of ships employed ever fought to that point by the Greeks against other Greeks. The battle took place near the island chain known as Sabota, which sat between Cape Leukemi, the place of the previous battle, on the southeastern promontory of Corsaira, and the region of Threspotia, which sat opposite of Corsaira on the mainland and just north of Ambracia. The Peloponnesian force consisted of 150 ships, 90 Corinthian and 60 more supplied by various Peloponnesian poles, including, and significantly, Athens' neighbor, Megara, as well as Ambracia, Lucas, Elis, and Anactorion. Each contingent had its own admiral, but the fleet was under the overall command of a Corinthian named Xenoclides. Besides this battle, nothing else significant is known about him. Anyways, the Peloponnesian ships were lined up with those from Megara and Ambracia on the right, near Sibota, the Corinthians on the left, near the southern tip of Corsaira, and the remaining of their allies in the center. When the Corsairians saw the Peloponnesian fleet approaching from the south, they readied their fleet of 110 ships and formed into three squadrons, each of which were led respectively by Mikiades, Isomedes, and Eurybatis. 
their names are also insignificant to the larger picture. As they lined up across from one another, as soon as the signals for battle were given, both sides advanced towards each other as the sailors sung paeons to keep cadence. When both sides finally collided, they each fought with hoplites on their ships, along with archers and javelin throwers, in a manner that Thucydides calls old-fashioned. Instead of ramming through and sinking the other ships, as was the custom of the time, both sides attempted to board their opponent's ships and fight what was essentially a land battle at sea, which apparently is how sea battles used to be fought. But according to Thucydides, because of this, the battle quickly descended into a wave of chaos, and the fog of war crept in. The ten Athenian ships were stationed on the far right, near the Corsairian coastline, and along with the Corsairian right, they were directly facing the Corinthians. Although they were part of the line, they showed great restraint and did not join the battle at first, per their instructions, as the Corinthians had not attempted to land. And so the ten Athenian ships hung back and observed. Meanwhile, the Corsairian ships on the left routed those of Megara and Ambracia on the Corinthian right, chasing them all the way back to their camp on the Threspotian coastline, which they plundered and then burned. The Corinthian left wing, though, was more successful. And when the Corinthians appeared as if they would be victorious, and a rout was becoming obvious, Lacedaemonius made the decision to engage the ten Athenian ships in the fight. Thucydides makes sure to point out that at this moment, a situation inevitably had come about, in which Corinthians and Athenians were openly fighting with one another. He says, quote, And it came to this point, that the Corinthians and the Athenians raised their hands against each other. End quote. Athenian assistance, though, was not able to turn the tide, and the Corinthians were victorious. The Corsairian and Athenian ships then fled back to the coastline to defend the island in case of a Corinthian landing. The Corinthians didn't give chase, but instead of doing what was the usual practice after a sea battle, which is gathering up their disabled ships and hauling them back to be repaired, they sailed through the wreckage of defeated ships and often killed shipwrecked survivors rather than taking them prisoner, including, although they didn't know it, some of their own allies who had been defeated on the right wing. Not all survivors were killed, though, as some instead were finally taken as prisoners, reported to have been 1,050. Afterwards, the Corinthians finally turned their attention to picking up their own dead and their damaged ships. After rendezvousing at the harbor of Sabota, the decision was made to once again sail against the Corsairians to either finish them off, if they come out to meet them, or to attack their land, if they do not. So towards the evening, the Corinthian fleet sailed out again, and the Corsairians responded by sending out whatever ships they had left that were fit for service, along with the ten Athenian triremes. Thucydides doesn't provide numbers, but they surely were at a severe disadvantage numerically. And so, they were fortunate that a misunderstanding rescued them from what probably would have been complete destruction. When the Corinthians arrived, they mysteriously began to retreat, because someone on one of the Corinthian ships must have looked behind on the horizon and saw a perceived second detachment of Athenian ships sailing from the south, at which point panic began to ensue amongst the Corinthian ranks until the decision was made to pull back, give up a sure victory, and withdraw from the fight. The Corinthians must have conjectured that perhaps Athens had decided to aid Corsaira in full force after all. If this was the case, then they would have only been partially correct. The ships were indeed from Athens, as the Athenians, who were plainly divided about the expedition, had thought better of dispatching a mere 10 ships. But as we mentioned, they sent only 20 more, and not their entire fleet. Anyways, the second detachment was commanded by a man named Glaucon, not to be confused with Plato's older brother, 
And it was a sheer coincidence that these extra Athenian ships arrived at this exact moment in time. The Corinthians, though, had mistaken these 20 ships for the entirety of the Athenian navy and paid heavily for their moment of panic. Once the Corinthians had realized their folly, it was now nighttime, and so both sides retired and anchored their ships. On the next day, the 20 new Athenian ships had joined the rest of the Corsairean and Athenian ones that were still seaworthy, and together they threatened a second battle if the Corinthians attempted to land on Corsaira. The Corinthians, though, retreated completely, rather than risk another battle. They were worried because of their need to guard their captured prisoners, their lack of facilities to repair their own damaged ships, and the increased size of the Athenian naval forces that was now present. But there was an even bigger problem now that they had decided to retreat and head home. Thucydides writes, quote, The Corinthians were afraid that the Athenians, thinking that the treaty had been broken because they had fought each other, would prevent them from sailing away. End quote. The Corinthians thus must have realized how vulnerable their fleet was at that time and how much serious damage could have been inflicted on them by the new Athenian ships and the rest of the Corsairean fleet. And so, in order to test how the Athenians had perceived the situation, the Corinthians put some men on a boat without a herald's wand, meaning they weren't untouchable, and sent them to the Athenians. When they arrived, they said, quote, You do wrong, Athenians, to begin war and break the treaty. Engaged in chastising our enemies, we find you placing yourselves in our path in arms against us. Now, if your intentions are to prevent us from sailing to Corsaira, or anywhere else that we may wish, and if you are for breaking the treaty, first take us that are here and treat us as enemies. End quote. The Corsairians that were within earshot immediately called out to seize and kill them. This then makes one wonder as to what these guys did in order to be selected for this experiment by the Corinthians. Anyways, the Athenians had no intention of escalating the conflict as they personally hadn't viewed the situation as a breach of the peace treaty. So they made sure that no harm was done to the Corinthian messengers and allowed them to sail away unhindered, so long as they made no attempt on Corsaira or its territory. Once again, the Athenians were sticking strictly to the terms of the defensive alliance with Corsaira, and thus were determined not to give the Corinthians and the Spartans any grounds necessary to accuse them of being responsible for breaking the peace treaty. When the dust had settled at the Battle of Sabota, both the Corinthians and the Corsairians had claimed victory. The Corinthians won the first battle, after which they set up a trophy on Sabota, and the Corsairians avoided a Corinthian occupation of their island and so they set up a trophy also on Sabota with Corinthian armor that had been carried out to their shoreline by the current. Basically, the result of the Battle of Sabota was a stalemate, and so things were still left up in the air. The Corinthians had not been deterred and were determined more than ever to continue the fight against the Athenians, who they believed had breached the Thirty Years' Peace, and the Corsairians weren't backing down either. Losses were recorded at 30 ships destroyed from the Corinthian fleet, and 70 from the Corsairians in addition to the 1,050 Corsairians who were captured. 800 of these were slaves, so they were sold. The other 250 were mostly from wealthy families, and so they were held by the Corinthians as prisoners in hopes that they could leverage them down the road. As things stood at the end of 433 BC, the Thirty Years' Peace was beginning to break down, or at the very least, was starting to fray at the edges. But over the winter of 433-432 BC, a few significant events would take place that would completely obliterate the peace, to the point that Pericles claimed that he could see war coming out of the Peloponnese, and those events will be the topic of the next episode. 
So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 90, The Road to War. Thank you.